Hey everybody, just a uh, quick word to say sorry about the uh, audio quality on this uh, podcast. I happened to be working from uh, a distance that week while my kids were off of school and uh, I forgot to hit the button so my mic did not work the way it was supposed to so I'm on Apple AirPods which is just not that great for uh, a podcast but be that as it may, our guest Jason Clark was fantastic, talking about consumerism and the church, uh, and uh, just a really deep discussion about it. So I hope you enjoy it. Um, listen, if you haven't subscribed yet, please do so. Subscribe via Apple iTunes or wherever um, you happen to do your subscribing to podcasts. Leave us a review, send us a, a suggestion uh, as to what you might like to hear us talk about, and we will do our best to do so. As always, thanks for listening. Uh, tell us to your tell us about us to your friends, uh, strangers on the street. Uh, maybe make a mask with a Rabbit Trails podcast. <laughs> I'm sorry. No. Anyway, thanks for stopping by. <laughs> Hey everybody, welcome to Rabbit Trails Podcast number whatever this is. I've lost track, don't know. In the 30s. I'm, I'm technically on vacation, so don't, don't hold me to account on anything. Uh, we've got a great podcast for you today, uh, but Garrick, it's, it's good to see you, man. I feel like it's been a long time since when I recorded. It has been. We recorded a bunch back to back to back, and then we kind of uh, went our separate ways. For we've, we've been letting those <laughs> out into the ether of the internet, and it's been nice, yes. uh, but yeah, so... I'm taking a break in my family scheme in order to do this, but I think it's going to be worth it. Uh, it's going to be great. We have, yeah. a, we, have a, we have a friend of yours, Jason Clark, on. I'll let you introduce Jason. Yeah, uh, Jason uh, is, is a good friend. I met Jason. He's the mainly through uh, the, his my experience. He was he's the lead mentor of Portland Seminary's leader, Global Leadership and Perspectives uh, DMIN program, and he he was kind enough to give me a, a doctorate. Uh, so I'm very appreciative of, of him. To Garrick. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, uh, but also a uh, church planner, a pastor at, for Sutton Vineyard in, in the, the great, one of the greatest cities in the world, London, yeah. England. Yeah. Uh, and three, three kids. Is that correct? I do. Three, three kids. kids. Yeah. Wife, motorcycle enthusiast as well. I sold my motorbike. Oh, you sold your, okay. Well, but COVID. Okay, still. Yeah. Sad day, but realized I was getting older and I've taken up canal boating instead. Oh, I'm wow. I'm 50. Well, that's well as, as one is wont to do when one gives up motorcycling, the next thing uh, I, I hear, it's like <laughs> number two on the things yeah, to do after yeah, motorcycling. Narrow, narrow boating. <laughs> canal boating. So is, mean, is, you know, is that most, rowing? Lots of, no, no. Lots of middle-aged men have motorbikes, but I just realized mm -hmm. I wasn't. I wasn't riding it very much and I'll come back to it. But um, yeah, I had a narrowboat holiday because COVID canceled everything. And yeah. I was supposed to be in South Africa with my wife for my yeah. 30th wedding anniversary. Oh. And instead we were on a narrowboat. We have canals oh. in the UK okay. and these uh -huh. narrowboats. Uh -huh. And we rented one and it was in September, beautiful, sunny. And it was abs It was so enjoyable. Okay. I thought, I think I'll do that instead. Uh-huh. Is so, so do, do you wear leather uh, chaps for that as well? <laughs> I've never worn leather chaps for anything. Okay. Oh, I'm, I'm a little disappointed. Contrary to all rumors. <laughs> is so okay. The, the, the canal system because that, that I, I have a little bit of experience. I, I was in Scotland a few years ago oh, yeah. and yeah. We, we, we visited the Falkirk Wheel, 
I don't know if you, okay. yeah, which is the 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 boat ele- boat elevator for the canal system, yeah. and uh, so is is that is that basically the same thing, kind of yeah, traveling so there through are canals these like that? Canal systems in the UK from oh gosh, early eighteenth, sorry, early nineteenth century, mm-hmm. and they were before train lines were the way that stuff got around the UK. So a dray horse would drag a long boat full of coal or stuff along these. So they would make these cuttings with water. So basically a river in a, but they were called canals, okay. a whole network, loads of them in the UK. I mean, lots of them in disrepair and closed, but, um, and there were one of the, sorry, I'm a bit of a nerd on this. Cause I just read too many. I've started reading. My wife said, what are you reading? I said, I'm reading. I've got, I've subscribed to a history book of canals in the UK. Mm-hmm, and my wife mm-hmm. is like, how old are you? Anyway, <laughs> I find it. I think it's fascinating. Yeah. I, well, have you heard the phrase legging it? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, leg it. That's yeah. the canal boat term, a narrow boat oh, term. Really? So these these boats didn't have engines. So when they were going through a tunnel, the guys would have to line the side and put their legs on the walls of the tunnel, lean back, and they would use their legs, cross their legs over, and take the boat through the tunnel. It was called legging it. Ah, yeah. No so way. The phrase leg it was to run quickly, but leg it. We need to leg it. Is is an old canal boat term. But anyway, so one of the sad things about them, just as they invested millions in the canal boat system, at the same time in the UK, trains, steam engines emerged. <laughs> so they yeah. spent millions, hundreds of millions in today's terms on these systems. And then very quickly, within 10 years, went bankrupt because everything moved to steam line, steam yeah. trains and stuff. So, But there's a bit of a renaissance going on Gosh. on canal boats, people slowing down. Um mm-hmm. It's a different pace of life because I hired this boat with my wife. It's hilarious. You're going along at two, three mile an hour and people walk past you. <laughs> you wave at them. That's how slow life goes on a canal boat. If you want to slow down, a canal boat, and there's beautiful places in the UK, some of the most beautiful countryside. Yeah, that's really cool. The, so, the, uh, the investment story kind of sounds like uh, uh, my decision to invest heavily in beepers, pagers right around the time of uh, cell phones, you know. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> the only, doctors still use those things, but if anyone invested in those yeah, long yeah, ago, you're in you're in trouble now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's uh, I think there's a there's a really good a really good segue. Well, f- first of all, I'll say I knew Jason was going to be awesome on this podcast because you you kind of know everything about everything. You're you're kind of like Barrett and I. We we know a lot of stuff. Uh, just I know have a lot of information about very much. <laughs> Yes. Okay. That's it. That, that's what I, I wanted to say. Although, although what, okay. Uh, what was your PhD in? Uh, what was your, my PhD in theology mm-hmm. was an account of the relationship between evangelicalism and capitalism. Mm, that's right. So how had it intensified in this? What was, how did it get to the mess that it's in now and why? Okay, so just our, just read us your dissertation then, because we we could talk about that for for days. I'd, uh, do oh, yeah. go on. <laughs> so so that was it. Eight years of my life, several many thousands of hours of reading and writing. To because the main reason I did it, I wanted to. I was tired of people that weren't evangelicals claiming the obvious that ev- evangelicalism is just in bed with capitalism and consumerism, but without diagnosing where it was or how it was so i sort of wanted to be own up to it and go okay so how can someone who's evangelical 
theologically own up to this and mm -hmm. but so we can deal with the problems ourselves instead of the usual because i was trying to deal with some of the craziness that goes on in response where people throw the baby out with the bathwater. so um so that was the idea of the project and as a from a, being a pastor because that's what i see day to day in church life you know mm -hmm. the, the church is dispensing religious goods and services to consumers so how did we end up there whether you're evangelical i mean you, you don't have to be evangelical that's just the normal mode of everyday life in western culture isn't it yeah 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 well so so how did so how did we if you if you how did we end up uh and because i think you you know for uh -huh. barrett and i we we notice it a little bit in in western european evangelicalism in yeah. spain but it seems to go feel more from a, coming from the lens of the u.s where that you know obviously there's U.S. has kind of gotten good at, yeah. Kind of. So, so at the heart of it all is is a disposition towards everything in life, which comes from capitalism per se. Is not. I mean, that's one of the things I say. Is not. It's not good or bad. It just is. It can be bad. Mm -hmm. So you've got capitalism, consumerism, and commodification. So cons capitalism is the. It's social arrangements and technical things for recently modern invention in history consumerism is the culture around capitalism and then commodification is a is the most pernicious problem so actually one of the things i focused a lot on was commodification and at the heart of that is in everywhere in the world but and not just the west but my focus was on the west why we keep everything at arm's length i mean this is a mixture of things secularism is another one but you know, my life, it's my castle. I pick and mix what I need when I need it. I go there to get something. And that affects my relationships, how I belong to things. And basically we use things in life. Mm -hmm. And we end up in a place where the church, even Jesus, Jesus is someone to go to when I need something else. He's not a way of life. He is someone to give me something for, a diff, for the life that I want. So I was looking at how did we end up there where we are the center of life, I make the life I want and God, Jesus, the church, my faith are just a resource to plug in and get me what I want when I want it. How did we get there? Well, began with the industrial revolution, uh, commercial society and the ability to be consumers. And, and some of the genesis is, I'll give you a couple of stories, probably stories are the easiest the way to know it. So, mm -hmm. So the printing press and the ability to print leaflets. Um, I mean, hundreds of thousands of leaflets being produced by the Bible Society in the UK to explain the gospel. It was incredibly evangelistic and powerful. But what you end up with is you end up generating from something that's Christian. So evangelicals did this. They were at the forefront of using technology. So embraced printing and technology. Um, and But then what you do is you develop a printing market. And then suddenly something that was used for one purpose is used for something else. Um, sermons, you know, great preachers, people like Spurgeon. There was a thing called sermon tasting. So the, the wealthier middle classes who were able to, because of transport, travel around London, were able to visit different mega, the equivalent of mega churches. And they called it sermon tasting. Go and hear the person preaching that you want. So, so you have this embrace of new communication styles that quickly turn into consumption. Or some other examples. Um, 
oh, I don't want to get too technical, but the whole music industry, printing of music mm -hmm. and hymnody and all that stuff turned into a whole industry. So before you know it, something that was at the forefront of technology and the benefits of globe, emerging global capitalism turn into modes of consumption uh, and create markets. There's also something else that goes on in there without being too technical, but crudely, see if you can, see if I can summarize this. So it's hard for us to understand a world that previously was Catholic mm -hmm. um, and the church mediated everything. Um, and you had indulgences, you know, Luther stood against those. Um, for the, from the Reformation and the Protestant Reformation, most people's lives were pretty brutal and pretty short, subject to war, plagues, early death, and the consolations of the Catholic faith and church and absolution and, you know, being told that you were going to be saved. Uh, there was an enormous amount of anxiety in the Protestant Reformation. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that happened was, how did you know that you were saved if you were a Protestant? And one of the things I looked at was the, the issue of providence. So for Protestants, if it's not the priest saying you're saved, one of the ways that you knew you were saved is, ah, oh, you were prospering. Mm. God provided stuff. Does mm -hmm. that sound familiar? Lots of evangelicals mm -hmm. still think the proof that God is involved yeah. in their life is that he gives them stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that was happening at exactly the time when the industrial world was changed and actually you can say protestants certainly protestants and then definitely evangelicals with methodists it was a symbiotic relationship they grew the economy just because of printing and music and travel these were all christian things that were possible so there's this sort of symbiosis but so what i looked at was somewhere in there this idea that god provided you providence becomes the evidence that god's at work in your life well it doesn't take much for that to become everything so mm -hmm. if if god is god and i know as a pastor most of the time i'm dealing with people who are disappointed that they didn't get something in life mm. god isn't god because i didn't get the house i wanted or the holidays i want or the you know, so how did we end up there? Yeah. And the prayers, yeah. and so ultimately the prayers we pray, I said a diagnostic, look at what we pray for. Jobs, homes, and relationships, usually the three three most important things in life. So there you go. Yeah, yeah. Rambling I, overview. I had it. No, that's that's, that's fascinating. And it's uh, I, I, two, two just quick points to add into that. Barrett and I talk a lot about this as well. The With an evangelicalism, even, I think that's been transposed even into ministry now where if you're having success, God's blessing you. And yeah. if maybe if your, your ministry is not going as well or not seeing the, you know, and so we have entire structures that are, and, and, you know, I, I think there's some, some nuance obviously there. I'm not, you know, you want to, obviously if you're going to invest money into certain efforts, you want to see them pay off. To mm. But I also remember an alpha course uh, in, in Dallas, Texas, which is a very, you know, yeah very consumeristic kind of place. Uh, I love it. It's a great city, but very consumeristic. Uh, uh, there being a, an Indian student who was, he was studying, doing his master's in Dallas at SMU. And uh, we were in this group and going around. He wasn't a believer. He wasn't a Christian. And, and everyone was asking, I, would, I really need a, a raise. Or I need, that was the prayer requests that were in the alpha group going around. 
you know, new, a better house or, you know, my roommate, like a better roommate is all. And, and, and he gets to him, he goes, I thought Christianity was really about giving up of, of things and really <laughs> giving of yourself fully to God and, and giving, losing all that stuff. Yeah. And, you know, it was very fascinating that he had seen that, but yet exactly. these people who'd grown up in a Christian society had missed, very, you know, key very perceptive key element. Yeah. Because you see, if I, when I travel around the world, when I used to get to travel around the world, mm-hmm. and people would say, what was your PhD on? You know, sometimes I would be in like Georgia with some conservative Christians or in Malmo, Sweden, with some more progressive evangelicals. Mm-hmm. And I, and I would summarize it this way. Say, I'd say, you know, for evangelicals, your job, your home, and your relationship are supposed to be used in service of Jesus Christ. Every evangelical I know knows the answer to that question is yes. Yeah? yeah? My life is supposed to serve the purposes of Jesus. But then I would say, why don't we live like that then? It's as if Jesus is supposed to give me the job, home, and relationship I want. So whether you're in the Bible Belt of America or somewhere more progressive in Europe, evangelicals instinctively know that we, if you answer that question, that was really what I was trying to look. I probably should have led with that when I told you what I was looking at. How did we get there? Yeah. Um, How do we get out? Because it, it, do you, I mean, (laughs) stumbling over my words, uh, it doesn't, it seems like in a lot of ways, maybe there are elements or branches which are trying to get out of that, but it also seems like there's those that are hit digging their heels in. Yeah. Uh, and then evangelicalism is really hard to find. I've, I've come to the conclusion evangelicalism is a, seems to be a network of personalities and like-mindedness, but not institution. Yeah. So, so it's hard to, yeah. Unpack that. But how do, how do you, how does, how does one, if one finds oneself in consumerism and this attitude, maybe that's, maybe that's the better thing rather mm. than in, institutionally. How does, what's the journey that you see take place for people to get out? Okay. Let me just make a comment on evangelicals because yeah, the term means so many different things to different people it means crazy, you know, Americans <laughs> storming the Capitol. Yeah. You know, um, to some people, yeah. Um, but for those who are evangelical, it's one of it's strange. There's a there's a technical term, an elocutionary shell noun, and basically it means with well, this how we use language and words. Mm-hmm. We often use words and we don't define them because we generally know what they mean. So for most people who are evangelicals, you know what roughly what it means, even though you can't say exactly what it means. When you meet an evangelical, you know that's oh, that's, a, you know, Bible Belt, American evangelical. I know we're related, but they're more like the sort of something weird went on there, kissing cousins kind of thing. I know we're family, but that's the one, that's the bit of the family I'm a bit embarrassed about. And then you meet other ones. It's just, we we have words that we use. And so evangelicalism works like that broadly. And most people know it means they're into, you're supposed to be into Jesus and the Bible in a way that other Christians aren't. Um, and that's one of the ironies evangelicals a certain some of the most fervent evangelicals in church attendance and other stuff talk the talk but really you know they really want the goods they want the they want the providence and the blessing and the and the goodies so um 
how, what, and again, what is an evangelical? So David Bebbington is, if you're looking for a church historian to say what evangelicals are, I made Garrick read this book back in the day, yep. would have done. And he says there are four things that set evangelicals apart um, from all other sorts of Christians. And he's he's debated, but broadly accepted. And this means you get Methodist and Catholic and Protestant and free church and charismatic, all sorts of different kinds of evangelicals. And it's, but four key things you're always going to see. So you see crucicentrism, the centrality of the cross, biblicism, high view of the Bible. If you don't think the Bible's God's word, you're not an evangelical. That's your period. Mm -hmm. If you don't think Jesus died and rose from the dead, and that's the most important thing, you're not, you're not an evangelical. Conversionism, that you're supposed to change that's another thing that makes someone evangelical you should be transformed but the last one's the most important that bebbington identifies is unique you see this really with the wesleys and methodism is the birth of evangelicalism as we know it um activism so calvin was quite happy to stay you know where he was he didn't mm -hmm. in geneva didn't want to go out to the rest of the world or send people wasn't a great missionary um but it's the method you know this desire to go to the rest of the world you know wesley says the world is my parish there's an irony the only reason wesley could say the world was his parish was because he could get on a ship and travel all around the world economically yeah. um but activism um you mentioned alpha in dallas mm -hmm. uh, as a guy called rob warner who looks at how in the western world those four things have split apart amongst evangelicals so you get the activist conversion people who are out there doing stuff and very focused on conversion and saving getting people to pray prayers to go to heaven when they die and then you've got the more fundamentalist lot who are really focused on the bible and inerrancy and crucicentrism and the cross you get you get this big split happening so that leads me to the answer to the other question one of the things would be to bring those four things back together as evangelicals mm. um the, the, the bible the cross conversion and activism um but practically what does it mean here's the main problem that i think i identified capitalism and consumer consumerism and commodification actually are so pernicious mm. we're trained from birth you know on a day off what do kids do they go shopping yeah you know, you you navigate life. Everything in life is through buying something, an experience. Yeah. Nothing is off limits in life if you can pay for it. The aspirations, the imagination for life that parents instill in their kids is you can be anything you want, be successful. Their friends and peers around. I mean, you look at what's on social, you know, the what would be called a social imaginary, Charles Taylor would say. So, so underneath all that, and I'm convinced of this, and it was in my research, is a very Augustinian notion that ultimately what we love and desire is what we organize our lives around. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the problem is we live in a world that trains our desires, trains us to love the wrong things. Um, you know, just, uh, to paraphrase all that, what, what you love is what you do. And then this is the vicious part of it. What you do forms what you love. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's almost impossible to break out of this. Um, just, you know, the, the, let's put this in crude terms for you. I sometimes, I've done this in my church or in speaking places to say, how much money would it take for you to give up on your faith? 
Mm. And people are actually really honest. I say, if every financial problem you had was taken away right now, and you were financially independent, could go on holiday as much as you want, have everything that you dream and long for, but you couldn't practice your faith with other people, take part in church or mission or anything, just go to heaven when you die. How many of you would be up for that? And it's very sobering because a lot of people will go, yeah, I'd take that. Mm. Because that's, that's what we're being offered on a daily basis. Yeah. So unless we come up with something compelling, of any, which, which, which is what I argued in my research, is evangelicals are supposed to be about something to live for, die for, meaning, adventure, purpose. It's supposed to be about Jesus and mission and the kingdom, so much so that everything else in life just seems insignificant compared to it. So actually, I was really hopeful for evangelicals. Um, I'll keep on rambling on here because two things I was trying to deal with. There are a whole lot of people who my, some of my friends have done this and no disrespect to them. They've gone, the, you know, this, the problem with consumerism, I need to make more of the church and they become an Anglican or some have become Catholics or Greek Orthodox. And you, and you sort of separate yourself from the world. That's one way to deal with this you know i'll it's kind of the benedict option <laughs> yeah exactly yeah precisely yeah. or the other one is there has been a whole sort of emerging slash pseudo missional movement that just think us throw the baby out with the bath water and you know just play golf with my friends and i'll call that church mm -hmm. you know just collapse everything into consumer spaces and call it church and it isn't because there is yeah. there's no conversion there's no cost there's no commitment it just so the, so what i was sort of arguing is evangelicals have got they're the part of the problem but they're supposed to be about experiencing jesus loving jesus giving your life for jesus in a way that turns erupts everywhere nothing's off limits to that mm. you know your work your home your family that is the that's the genus of evangelicalism in a way other expressions of christianity might not be so that's the potential for it if we could recover that does that make any sense it makes it makes a lot totally. of sense do you, do you think that during this time of covid it seems to me that there's a potential for a nice big reset button to be pushed because so much of that consumerism cannot be done and so people are reforming right now um the question is is are they reforming around the right thing so you know you're echoing Charles, Charles Taylor, James K. Smith there. Um, yep. You know, we are what we do. Or we love what we do. Um, and that forms us. Um, we had a long discussion in, in my church where I'm an elder about giving and, and talking about, okay, we need to kind of reform our, our church around giving. And, and I, mm. I, I kind of presented, we, we would always talk about it from up front for years that I was at this church at our church. And it would be, Hey, give because you know the, the the money that you give goes to these wonderful activities that we do and we just thought you know this is a, a huge we we do this because it's an act of worship because you know 200 times a week i'm bending my knee at the altar of some consuming practice and i mm. have an option one time a week to bend my knee at the altar of the father and give to the yeah. person you know given a way that that i have to think about and make sacrifice for and <clears throat> anyway, so I, I think that that's a that, that, that there's real power in that for us within the church to be mm -hmm. doing things to be formed towards Jesus. 
Um, are you guys during this time of COVID, you know, and I know that the distancing that churches have had to do, how are, how are y'all, if any way, able to use this as an opportunity to help people reset as, you know, they can only go out with one person and go on a walk instead of going and buying the thing that they would normally do. Yeah. Well, let me start with giving and segue to, to that, as you mentioned. <laughs> so my, my brother um, became a Christian a few years ago, which was wonderful. The next, I'm the oldest, he's the next one down. And I remember in our 20s, he was horrified that I gave 10% of my money to church when I didn't have any money and three little kids. And, and he was like, that's so abusive and controlling by the church. So I said to him, because he was really into, I mean, he became an alcoholic, but drugs and dance and raves and the whole other stuff and i sat down with him and says how much money do you spend on your lifestyle and eventually realized he was spending 50 percent of his income on drugs alcohol and raves wow. and i went you spend 50 percent of your income on your lifestyle and i only spend 10 percent on the most important thing in my life i said i need to be giving more and you know what that stuck with him so later on when he became a christian i mean 25 years later you know, we laughed about that. And, and at the heart of that is, you see, in consumer culture, if you downsized your house because of a hobby, like sailing or anything, everyone would say, good for you. Yeah. It's your life. I mean, I can sell you anything for a way of life, a bike, a hobby, a sport, a, a timeshare, and everybody will think that that is not a sacrifice. That is the best investment of your life. Yeah. When it comes to Christianity, if Jesus is our way of life, it shouldn't, it should actually, it shouldn't, we shouldn't have to downsize. It shouldn't take up our time. It shouldn't cost any. In fact, it should make my house bigger. It should give me more money. Do you know what I mean? Like Jesus is some yeah. maximizer. It's, it's that, it's not, so we live in a world where Jesus is not even relative to everything else. He's less. Mm-hmm. so we've got to recover the centrality of it so let's so this issue of i mean i would love it if covid did reset christians you think the number of christians that there are even in europe you know we, we're in places where lots of people aren't christians anymore but the ones who say they are if they were woken up and chose tomorrow to put jesus first instead of their holidays or their leisure activities or all the other things and it's not that those are bad it's that those take primacy for people mm-hmm. i'd love to think that would happen and i'd love to love a revival to happen the sociologist in me observing says i'm pretty sure here's what's going to happen because it has happened in history when we come out of lockdown some people are just going to go mental I mean, they're going to go off the deep end with, I mean, I'll sound old fashioned, you know, drugs, sex, holidays, they're just going to lose themselves because that pressure, and they're going to be invited everywhere, discount everything to do that. And I think a lot of Christians are going to do that as well. They're just going to go, I'll just just take a break for six months from my Christian life, basically, Mm. because I can get back to it. And that's the lie. I can just get back to this. It's optional. It's not. So I'm I'm sort of warning other pastors and some of our leaders, don't be surprised. You know, we've lost people because of COVID. They just dropped off the radar. But some people are just going to, you know, flip out. 
for a while as they decompress. It's like they've been on a long fast on everything and then yeah, and they, they're, they're just gonna go on a bender of yeah. just stuff in their face. Yeah, that makes sense. I would probably need an amnesty at the end of that, you know, like hey, if yeah. you and you've just woken up, you know, like hey, yeah. it's you know, but but what I'm noticing, and again, the pastors I talk to in churches, there is an increasing core of Christians. It's not some amazing revival, but they have really lent into discipleship, Christian practices. They've either discovered them and put them into place or they've recovered them. And I think that's the most exciting thing for the church at the end of this. So the people who have discovered that in COVID, they're anchored in that, they're grounded in that. Um, And then I'm also hoping for you know, some sort of revival in the, because in history, this might, this is one of those sorts of moments that could be a revival time because revivals usually come through massive upheaval. Mm -hmm. People are going to go, was this really, was this really what I was thinking life was about? There might be a, an opportunity if we can lean Mm -hmm. into it, Mm -hmm. but they're going to need to see people who are living for something different. Yeah, that's the question. That's how big. That's how the Christianity's had influence in history. When people go, this particular way of living is redundant. Is there anyone who's lived differently? That's one of the problems with evangelicalism. Is so many just look like everybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> was, my kids were playing. A, uh, uh, my kids love. Uh, oh gosh, what do we call it in English? Eurovision and uh oh, in, in the, and they they're it's of course you know the time where all this and in sweden is you know me, it's called melody <laughs> it's big in sweden and so it's a big deal here right so my my kids were we were telling them about past like really good songs that you know had gone through yeah. the festival and and um and uh today my kids were playing this one song um called it's it's, it's called you're amazing of course it's like a love song but i was listening to it and i was like this could be a worship song that I've heard sung in churches, you know, like I'm feeling great. I'm feeling awesome, you know, and, and it's just, you're amazing. And, and I'm like, Oh, this is totally a worship song because it's, it's just that it's all about me, but you made me feel good. So that's, that's good. And and we're not getting away from that consumerism. Anyway, uh, to my shame, I, I probably have, have longed for songs like that in, in my own past. I think I've been, I've, I've, done some reforming of my own life realizing even the own consumers it's interesting to me how how much we tend to think that we go through the secular postmodern consumerist capitalist you know whatever you want to call it world and we're not changed by it um but the reality is is we often end up looking a lot like the world around us uh we kind of accept those things and then we you know we I, it, so it's it's very hard to walk through fire and not get burned uh, oh, yeah. in, in that regard yeah definitely yeah there is no neutral place to stand and that's one of the geniuses of evangelicals it recognizes that it's you know jesus the incarnation takes place within the world erupts within the world it's not it's not in the church i mean that's partly where where god is but also in the world and even money i mean that at its best the belief that god does things through money that's not a bad mm-hmm. thing for an evangelical that mm-hmm. mission takes place everywhere in the home at work in my sport and in leisure and you know that that's the that's the genius of it because it's too it's too tempting because to resolve that tension into all the church against the world or 
ah, there is no church. Or um, you probably know the phrase, so evangelicals talk about it being in the world, but not of it. You heard that one? Yeah, yeah. yeah. The well, problem that... is we've got too much in the way too much in the world. Yeah. And then the other one is we, there's, a, there's evangelicals are suspicious of the church. That's a Protestant thing but we're not in church enough. We need to be, we need to find a way to be a bit less in the world and a bit more in church. And that yeah. would be, that would be better for us to be, to be evangelicals and navigate, navigate life. I was going to, I had a great question and I, I just dropped it in my head. Um, I, Garrett, well, Garrett, you're oh, what, talking over him at this point. That's so. <laughs> that's no, that's what it, I was going to say. I think Barrett and I have seen this in our own organization. The way missions has has made this slow, 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 slow shift from come die, come come serve, come give yourself to. This is kind of another experience, mm. uh, and I'm not saying that that's necessarily happened. Yeah, in, yeah. You know, but 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 the American, you know, the American sense of global missions has has shifted. You can and you can see it, and where people come now with the high expectations of I'm going to have yeah. this experience, as opposed to come and come and give of yourself completely, mm-hmm. and and maybe even suffer, or maybe even die. You yeah. know the the difference between put put get on the boat with your coffin. Yeah. You know I remember I remember in when we went to the um in Seoul when we went to the um I was going to say yeah yeah the 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 uh, cemetery for missionaries and there, there was yeah. one woman who had i believe she had gotten to to korea and died That's within right. months and her gravestone literally says if i had another life to give i would give it to korea again so yep. some something along those lines and that that power of that in which it feels like we really have lost that across so the that, board that shared experience that we had because you and i visited that cemetery in korea it was unusual in that Missionaries have got a bad, quite rightly so, for yeah. trying to overly westernize the world. But Korea was different, that people died there in extensive numbers and sacrificed their lives to preserve the language and the culture of, of the Koreans instead of writing over it. Um, but yeah, we, you and I, I went home and I looked up who that young girl was who, with that mm-hmm. phrase, if I had, you know, another life to live, I'd give it all to, you know, Korea again. And, and looked up her story. So she, like all missionaries, firstly, this is kind of shocking that back in the day to be a missionary was her family wave her off from a church service and she does take her coffin with her and they know that she's probably going to die. And she does. She's only there a few weeks and she's dead. But what happened is then they have a church service to commemorate her life. And at that service, they made a call for young people to replace her. And something like 20 young people then yeah. went off to missions. So these evangelicals, so that's one of the ironies, isn't it? Life was incredibly short and brutal. But evangelicals, even families knew that to follow Jesus was to enter into risking death. Yeah. That was normal. Now, fast forward. One of the problems we've got is evangelical parents who think that following Jesus is supposed to maximize their kids' lifestyles. Yeah. And you, you've probably, you've had a therapeutic moralistic deism, you know, just that the parents distill God for kids down to therapy to help them feel good about themselves. Deism, God's there in an emergency and moralistic that they won't have sex and drugs. That's what Christianity has gotten reduced to. Parents are so to blame in the consumer matrix. Whereas if we could recover that one of saying to kids, risk your life for Jesus. Yeah. 
you did the life is not climbing that you know going to college getting a degree being successful buying a house that whole thing that because that wasn't a thing before for christians and that's become the the dream that parents give their kids to we yeah. you see it you might like well you do yeah. see it don't you i see it with my youth pastor you know some parents they want their kids to be into jesus but not too much as long as it doesn't yeah. mess with the plans they have for the, their kids doing well in the future and being financially successful and they don't want that. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, that's, uh, you know, we, we work for an organization which brings, you know, young people over to various parts of the world. And I've noticed the parents being much more involved over the many years uh, going from, you know, when, when I went overseas, I informed my parents I'm going, they go, okay. Uh, I got on a plane. I had no idea where I was going. I, I, I stepped foot in Tashkent, Uzbekistan. And I thought, this doesn't look anything like the desert. I had no clue. I mean, I was an ignorant, you know, American of geography. And uh, anyway, but I mean, you know, I got, Garrick did a similar thing going to Estonia. He got sent a binder of, okay, here's how, here's the, the day you report and, and, you know, show up. And then, you know, now it's like, you know, I've heard stories. I have not had this happen, but parents giving phone calls of, okay, my, my kid's coming over. So I need you to, you know, do these yeah. things for, for the kid. And, I'm not necessarily blaming the parents. I think they're just playing the role that they see that they're, they're carrying out the values that, that we as a society hold deal, hold dear in some respects. Um, But it is, it is hugely different. And I'm glad, look, I'm glad I didn't pack all my stuff in a coffin, you know, (laughs) like like when I, (laughs) when a a 24 years old or whatever it was, when I, when I shipped off to Central Asia and then North Africa, I'm glad I didn't take a coffin. I took a couple of suitcases and I, you know, we didn't have dial up internet and I suffered for Jesus, but. Barrett's being, being, uh. He's being very modest. Aren't you a wanted man in, in Uzbekistan? <laughs> I, I mean, I was kicked out, but there's a, there's a, they don't know who I am. I could sneak back in at any point. I, I did I did cross the uh, Abu Dhabi into Afghanistan one time, and 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 I bribed a uh, a uh, Afghan border guard to get back into Uzbekistan because <laughs> anyway it went south. It was a, it was a crazy interaction. Anyway, all that to say the, the point being, <laughs> this is what we call a rabbit trail. Um, <laughs> you know, you just, you just really, it's, it is different. And, and I even find it in my own life though. Um, There have been times where I have fought with God because I didn't think that he was, you know, Hey, look, God, here I am. I'm serving you, whatever else I should be getting. And you could put in a whole number of things. It could be success on the missions field. It could be a bigger house. It could be yeah. you know, better tasting food or whatever else. I, I believe those lies. So I, we all do it. Yeah. Um, it seems to me that the, the, the task then, or one of the, one of the big tasks of, of the, uh, the, the, let's say missions practitioner or, or pastor or whatever then is yeah. to enter into that fray and point people to mm-hmm. a better life. One that's sold out for Christ. Uh, but does that have to happen incrementally or can that like, like if your youth pastor were to go to his youth and go, get ready to die for Jesus. Like, is that a call that he can make? Or is it like, do we need to make this incremental, keep pushing, keep pushing sort of thing? Like, So I think we have to do two things. Okay. We have to cast the net wide at every level. Um, 
there's always the temptation to just narrow things down to just the one thing. So you could start something up tomorrow that, you know, emissions organization that deliberately finds places where you've got a 90% chance of dying. Yeah. And you probably get a bunch of Christians who sign up for it. Um, but I don't think it works that way. Um, you know, and that's the sort of standard operating procedure that people default to if they feel like they've compromised, you know, I'll just go, I'll just make, go all in and go as, you know, as high as possible. I mean, the reality was to be a missionary, 200 years ago carried a much higher rate of risk of death just because of disease travel you know that was the only way to do it so whereas we've got a lot safer options now so i don't think it's a zero-sum game i think we need both you, you need let's say with church missions anything that you're doing we need a big front door with lots of experiences but then the invitation within that into discipleship and to go deeper and further and discipleship more risk so I, I think that's discipleship is the key to everything at the minute if I was you know even if I wasn't a pastor I realize you know it's it's not mission it's not spiritual formation it's actually discipleship you know finding a few people who really want to give their lives for Jesus and then you do a whole bunch of other stuff around that Jesus had big crowds of people around him you know, it's, I'm not, I'm not so worried about, you know, crowds can be great. <laughs> um, yeah. So big crowds of people, lots of experiences, lots of events, but within that the constant, like Jesus did, do you want to pick up your cross? It's up to you if you want to. And that's always fewer people that do that. Uh, that make any sense? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Jason, I, I, I do want to get to, to this, you know, we are in COVID times and, and, yep. you know, everyone is going through a lot. And I know I've been reading some of your posts on mental health and um, mm, yeah. What, what, cause you know, I think Barrett, Barrett and I, we both have, uh, you know, staff we're working with who are going through some, they're going through some hard times yeah. uh, because of the anxiety. Yeah. Uh, the, it's just that our life has changed so much, not for the better necessarily in certain cases, but um what what I, well and i think we even we feel like a sense of oh gosh where where, where are we going what what is the the frontier of, of caring for people caring for ourselves yeah. uh in the midst of a really uh challenging i mean let's, let's just be honest we're this is like a, a world war you know we're we're all locked into something uh and it's yeah. it's affecting everybody how what, what what have you been learning what have you been talking about with respects to that um, I suppose hey, for anyone listening, why, why this topic? Cause you know, I survived significant abuse when I was a kid, suffered anxiety, depression, both my parents committed suicide later in life. And, you know, I know a lot of those dynamics and trying to find a way to integrate mental health and getting well with faith is a, it's a big part of my life. And, um, and it is as a pastor, um, in a church and, you know, people find it hard to talk about mental health anyway. And certainly Christians aren't often known for being great places to talk about mental health because of the stigma of it, you know, as if it's a lack of faith or uh, that stigma just gets, you know, uh, amplified often in, in church. So, um, so a few things, you know, mental health is not, you know, it's normal for people to suffer from it like any other form of illness. And we think it isn't until it happens 
um, you know, at least one in four people are struggling with some mental health issue. Doesn't mean they've got a clinical diagnosis, but that's just in the UK. And then things like COVID amplify. So they probably cause people who wouldn't have mental health issues to get them or it brings them on sooner. Uh, you know, lots of mental health issues are things that just catch up with people because of the way they're living their life and doing their life. Um, some of it's genetic. Um, there's a thing called, I learned from a trauma therapist, uh, potentially traumatic experiences. So COVID is not automatically traumatizing. Um, psychologists have been recognizing that some of the most resilient people in life are people who have faced traumatic incidents, but they have, it's, it's brought, it's made them resilient and they've responded to them. In fact, the one of the dangers at the minute is, and especially Christians will be party to this, if they've got parents who have coddled them and protected them from the world, they're probably the least able to cope with. They're going to have the most potentially traumatic things happening to them because trauma is what you make of things. It's not automatic that everything is trauma. Psychologists know that. It's how you respond to what happens. So if your parents, your church community have not helped you to take responsibility and go through difficulties in life, you might be finding COVID traumatizing. So my millennial kids tell me that their generation are saying, I've never experienced anything like this. Now, I'm old enough, born in 1969. You know, I left home when I was 18, had to make my way in the world and get a job. And there was no such thing as the internet and iPhones and Starbucks and you know, multiple holidays a year to nice destinations. And, you know, life was just, was very, even was very different then. Mm -hmm. You didn't fall off the edge of the earth. No, I didn't. (laughs) I'd want my kids to go back to that, but they just realize, I mean, my kid, I see that with my kids saying how remarkably protected they've been in life as a generation. Mm -hmm. So it will be interesting to see how much COVID again, sociologically does affect people. I mean, I get so tired of it on the radio and TV here, the, the clickbait sensationalizing. Yeah. There was someone the other day saying, for every month a kid is out of school, they will have X percentage less earnings for the rest of their lives. And I'm like, what a load of crap. <laughs> Absolutely. You can't, you can't. How on earth did you predict that? I don't yeah. know. Some, <laughs> so, some of these professors and some, you know, sociologists, they sit there and they just dice up your life and go, well, that number of years equals this and is that. When in actual fact, what you and I know is some of the most amazing things happen when you are under stress, when you are pressured. Some of these young people may turn out to be the most resilient because they had an experience of life that other generation, the generation before them was protected from. So, you know, kids are, kids are remarkably resilient. And there, there may be a, a, I mean, I'm sure there are going to be ones that find it hard to socialize and reconnect and, and do stuff. But I don't think it's that zero sum game. And again, look at history. The greatest moments in history, wars, plagues, you know, human resilience and factoring God doing things with people. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. So we're, with mental health, uh, we all suffer from it. Potentially traumatic experiences, uh, being kind to one another. I think a lot of the this was a thought I had the other day. A lot of the conspiracy theory, weirdness, absolute 
mental stuff that's going around at the minute and even with christians i think a lot of that is going to go away when people aren't stuck at home for months on end mm-hmm. with nothing but social media to look at <laughs> yeah. i think it is just i think a lot of it is a manifest that conspiracy there's the whole psychology of conspiracy theories and all that kind yeah. of stuff I, I listened to a podcast the other day of a guy who studies the the conspiracy theories and his yeah. point was just that he said look you, you put in the mix of COVID and everyone just on social media. And he said, it, it's not that people are believing in more conspiracies. It's just that they now are focusing them on a few and then they're kind of narrowing in. So anyway, so it, it, fascinating stuff. But yeah, I think you're right. COVID has, has uh, you know, it's just steroids. allowed people. Yeah, it's just, yeah, that's a great way to put it, Garrick. It's steroids for that. Yeah, it is. So I'm not sure I answered your question. I gave you a pretty, pretty, uh, pretty vague question. Broad so. remit. I mean, we're doing, <laughs> we're introducing a ministry in our church. There's a thing in the UK called Kintsugi. Um, I mean, that's the name for the, the Japanese art with the bolt, you know, the broken bowl that you put back together and the, it looks beautiful because it's mm-hmm. put together with you know, oh, yeah. gold. And, uh, and there's a ministry in the UK and it's, it's beautiful. It's in the church and that's exploded. We've got a bunch of people in our church training in it and it's making a, spe- a well-being space that people can come to and can talk about, you know, depression, anxiety, mm. um, all the, all, you know, things that normally they just haven't got a space to go to where they get empathy and you know, appear where people aren't trying to be experts and fix them, and but just you know, be human beings together. And it's mm-hmm. um, yeah. So we're trying to lean into that because we recognise that people in our church will need it, but their friends and family. So when their friends and family are you know drinking too much or whatever they do as we come out of COVID um, or having tough times, and they can see that they're not coping, say, hey, I've got this great space place you might find it helpful to talk with these people um so there'll be huge opportunities yeah uh working working in london so so a big yeah. a big topic we always talk about is is uh doing but it, whatever it is ministry mission in, in western europe yeah and uh you know we i, I think we, we kind of talked a little bit about in the sense of you know obviously a consumer consumerism yeah has a lot to do with secularism and how, you know, we, yeah. we're, we're kind of in that, in that world, in that, that soup. Uh, what, what do you, as a, as a church planner, as a pastor uh, for many years, what, what do you see as the future of, of, uh, of the church in, in Western Europe, particularly, um, or maybe the West? Um, wow. Small, small questions here. Small yeah, questions. Small, small <laughs> questions. I hate trying to predict the future. Yeah. Most futurologists get it wrong anyway. Yeah. Who could have predicted all the things we're going through now? Yeah. Um, oh. Well, I guess the question is: Are you are you are you optimistic? Are you are you pessimistic? Yeah, I, no, I'm optimistic in that. Mm-hmm. You look through church history and think human beings done some pretty bad things to stuff up history, and yet God still managed to find people and have them know him and do mission and church and faith in history god finds people and, and i'm i'm more the more i look at history i'm more I'm like god has to reminds me it's like it's history is his you know it's one of the things if you learn some theology salvation history god is lord of history um 
so I think sometimes we can feel like, I mean, we, we have a responsibility to respond to culture and forces and be faithful. So that's the first thing. I take a positive, much more positive view than I used to. Mm-hmm. And within that, that it's okay for things to ebb and flow. If the church died out in the West, it won't die out in the rest of the world. You know, it's the church has died out in many places in history for lots of reasons. So, you know, I hope it doesn't. Um, God finds people, God's Lord of history. And I think where faithfulness is greatly underrated, you know, just the, the faithfulness of the church to live differently. If the best thing we can do is not try to, oh yeah, not get in bed with politics in the way that Christians too often, certain kinds of Christians do. Um, And that's just is the wrong way. But like I said, living differently, living for Jesus is the best thing we can do, you know, and that can transform whole communities, just a handful of people can can totally mm-hmm. transform communities so faithful passionate pursuit of jesus more than large numbers of people large numbers of people often don't make a big difference it's just a big crowd um, yeah. but a few people can change really can change the world so i'm i'm hot, optimistic and hopeful for that and i think certainly the mood music and the things i'm hearing again from the you know, the networks that I'm in is a real refocusing on discipleship by the church. And I think the realization that a lot of us have known there's been an obsession with bums on seats and numbers of people. Mm-hmm. But when you're forced to do what you do differently, I think people have either had to lean into that or they're not doing anything. And then now there's the, we need to keep this while we, that's my greatest hope that, I would predict if people will look whether even if a revival happens, great. I really would love that to happen. But I think people will say a certain number of Christians were more faithful and that the church in the West rediscovered discipleship. I think that's what is going to un, unfold for the next mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 10 years or so. Mm-hmm. That would be a prediction. When you say discipleship, uh, can you can you explain a little bit about what you're thinking when you say that? Because I think it's easy to for everyone who listens, depending upon their context, that they have immediate yeah. words that come into mind. But maybe yeah, you have a specific idea, uh, and I'd love to hear what what yeah. you're thinking of when you say discipleship. So uh, in our church, we started. Well, oh, uh, I learned this from Will Mancini. Um, the thing called he's got a great book future church if you want to get a book it's really excellent one of those guys who says that you think i spent eight years doing a phd and here's a guy who comes along and comes with one of the best overviews of the church <laughs> i've seen and puts it into nice sound bites that people understand far better than my academic work but he talks about upper room and lower room moments um that discipleship is predominantly about the upper room. Lower room stuff is events, programs, and experiences. So he uses an analogy. If you ask a 12-year-old kid what do they want for their birthday, they'll say, I want a game or a bike, yeah, Mm. or an iPhone, concrete things. If you ask a parent what they want for their kid, they'll talk about conceptual stuff, upper room stuff. They'll say meaning, purpose, you know, the much more nebulous things that are less concrete. And a lot of Christians live their life in the lower room. 
they want friends, they want fun, they want games, they want toys. And if they don't have those, they don't like it. But the invitation from Jesus is the upper room. Mm -hmm. And conceptual stuff is much harder to, we can be passionate about it, but to live it and describe it and do it. So we've been trying to find language in our church for discipleship. Because again, it's one of those things people know what it is, but don't know what it is. Mm -hmm. So we, we're playing around with some of the language, but we're sort of landing on discipleship is, what is God saying to me? And what am I going to do about it? Mm -hmm. Because the first thing requires you seeking God and having the whole of your life open to him and saying, God, what are you saying to me about my money? What are you saying to me about my work? What are you saying to me about my identity? Whereas a lot of the time for Christians, we keep all those things, we keep them all off limits to God or there's a, there's you know, compartmentalized. So it's that, it's that I will open up my life. God, what are you saying to me? And then the, cor the corollary with it is, what am I going to do? Because if you don't do something, you're not a disciple. If God says to you, go, and you don't, you're not a disciple. God says, do this, and you don't, you're not a disciple. Mm -hmm. um, and then the third thing we do is we're saying as church leaders, Christians, friends, how can we help you? What's God saying to you? What are you going to do about it? And do you see how that's very different than I want you to do something for me, which is often what people want. That's the consumer mentality. I want this experience. I want even God. I want you to get me this, do this for me. Right. But the way of the cross is participation. That's ultimately what Jesus does. He makes a way for us to participate with him. And God, what are you saying? What am I going to do about it? Mm. So that's the language wow. we're using for discipleship. Yeah. And then it could be anything. That's the exciting thing. I mean, could you imagine if every Christian, it wouldn't have, but if every Christian woke up tomorrow and said, God, what do you want to say to me? And what should I do about it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's powerfully simple too. Mm. It, I think often in our, our discipleship models, we, we, we break it down to like, these are the things you've got to know. Yeah. These are the things you've got to do, right? You know, give or, you know, and those are, those are, those are all good things, important part, but breaking it down into this, the simple, the simple kind of question of God, what, what do you want me to do? What do I need to do as yeah. I interact with you and my, the community that I'm in? Uh, what, what, what am, what am I called to do? I think that's, that's, that's beautifully simple, but powerful. So what we're doing in our church, I mean, we'll build back, we'll have Sunday services and, kids ministry and youth events and programs and they're not bad you know they're great ways we want to connect with people and we want to fish and we want people to come into felt needs seminars and all that kind of stuff but we want the places where they get invited into our mission statement in our church is inviting people into their first and next encounter with god so to spot people have had an encounter and then invite them into the next discipleship is inviting people into more encounters with god mm -hmm not giving them things or helping it's like do you want to encounter god more so that you can say what's god saying to me what am i going to do about it so how do you how do you, how do you protect against the so if, if a consumer hears the word encounter yeah what they feel what they could filter that through is okay what am i going to get 
Yeah. Uh, so, so how do you, how do you protect against the, for, for those who come in, how do you protect it? I, you know, I grew up in a, well, I grew up both in vineyard and, and let's say, uh, back guano, crazy, charismatic, uh, yeah. <laughs> things, uh, as well. Um, and then shifted over to Bible church and anyway, so I've had the, I've had a very broad spectrum. Yeah. Uh, but there can be that tendency to go, I want to, to treat the encounter. So a consumer has a good meal and then the search becomes, I want a better meal. And so how do you, as a church, especially a vineyard church protect against the, um, the, the, the encounter syndrome of, well, I had a great encounter last week. And that means next week I'm going to have an even better one. And so when that doesn't come back, there's the a disappointment or there's a culture that says this is the standard of encounter. And so we've just got to keep bumping it up. And again, let me just say, just for important sake, I'm all for the encounter part. So even though I, I grew up in something that was different, I, I that that's fine. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. Cause we're, we're just so hideously prone to it. You know, the number of times, you know, again, pastors are just as bad, you know, and go to an evangelism conference, be massively moved about evangelism, have the Holy Spirit fall upon me, be convinced that I need to engage in evangelism and then go home and do absolutely nothing. Cause I had an experience. <laughs> we, that's one of the problems of experience. We mistake feeling something for having done something. I mean, it's mm-hmm. the process of reification. We take, this is at the root of consumer culture. It makes the, it, it takes, a feeling about something or having done something we go to a, a rock concert to make poverty history and mistake singing a song and holding up our phones with lights as you, we ended poverty no you didn't <laughs> you had an experience yeah. you know yeah. Yeah. And, the, and so so yeah we have to be aware of it secondly we have to i think we have to name what encounter with god is and what it's not in some way so we're trying in our church to develop language because we used to have, we've got good language. And I think a lot of churches do. If you want to belong, do this. If you want to take part, do this. We've got, we've got those things, what you call assimilation, but discipleship languages, we're, we're trying this out. It's normal for Christians too. dot, dot, dot. Mm. Um, and the way that we're getting, because it's conceptual, the way that we're learning and reaching for this is stories of transformation. Mm-hmm. So have you seen the TV series, The Chosen? Uh, yeah, a little bit of it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's done well. It's done absolutely well. Absolutely amazing. Our whole church is watching it because we're saying, eventually we're saying, look, do you, you want to follow? This is the Jesus who says, come follow me. And it's done so well. Uh, we, we absolutely loved it. It's having a big impact because... Do you, do you want just stuff or experiences or do you want this this Jesus says come follow me will you follow yeah. him that's that's what discipleship is following Jesus mm-hmm. saying yes to him but anyway this this whole encounter and the yes thing and the chosen is is just so it's so powerful because you, it lets you describe that's what it looks like anyway there's a there's a beautiful bit where they take the supposition of Mary Magdalene and what she was like before and after in, in the TV series, The Chosen. And it's done so beautifully um, for watching, for meeting Jesus and his deliverance of her. And again, in church history, you know, we know that Mary Magdalene 
um, was was set free by Jesus and ended up following him and spending time with him. But there's the character Nicodemus. And again, this is all supposition, but it's done so beautifully from what we know of the characters. And, and basically Mary said, Mary Magdalene said, Nicodemus says, because what happened to you? Because he saw her before she met Jesus and was delivered. And she basically says this, well, I was this and now I'm like this. And it was because of him. And it's just so stunningly simple. That's what discipleship is. I was like this. Now I'm this. And it was because of Jesus. Mm -hmm. So we are trying to collect more and more stories of transformation. So rather than stories of experience, rather stories of feet, I felt this, we're actually asking people, describe what you were like, describe how you've changed. Mm -hmm. And what did Jesus do? Because then that story is a lot more than I went and I felt or I went and I was convicted. Does that make, does that make sense? Yeah, it all makes a lot of sense. And then hopefully people go, I want that. I want to be, yeah. I want transformation. And transformation is not just the feels. And, and even if people don't want it, I think being in the, being in Sweden, I've, I've, come to the, I've come to the conclusion that even if people don't want it, the few of us who would go to that, that's the most God-honoring thing we could do. And so then that makes it so, so it has the added benefit of also being right. <laughs> like, like, it's just like, like, I think there are times in ministry where it was, well, I want to do this because I'm, I'm hopeful that it'll pay off for the, you know, the big, the big payoff in, in the long run of more seats or more souls or whatever else. Yeah. And I think I missed, I missed kind of the meaning of it when at the end of the day, it was no cultivate faithfulness as an exile yeah. in the land. And that becomes then the testimony. And obviously then life change happens and people mm -hmm. want to be around life change. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that droves will be around. Uh, the crowds left Jesus, but those who knew him best and were affected by him most were ultimately you know, led faithful lives. Well, I, I was looking at the story of the, you know, the parable of the rich young man mm. ruler. Yeah. And I might, I might, I'm trying to write a book on mental health and spiritual formation at the minute, but if I write another book after that, I might call it The Missing Disciple. So you mm -hmm. see, Jesus Jesus gathered huge crowds, had compassion on people, uh, fed them, cast out demons, healed the sick, and told them they should live differently. The kingdom of God is like this, now go and live like this. Yeah? Mm -hmm. But he was quite selective at choosing the disciples. And ruthlessly focused on them um, who made it. And in some, as you know, in some of the Gospels, the retelling, you know, he, he's, it's probably two years into ministry, he goes up on a mountain, comes down, prays, and names the disciples, calls them out of the, the, the larger group of disciples. Um, and you wonder what he saw and how he chose. Um, but you've got this young guy, the rich and ruler, comes to Jesus um, and he says, you know, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you know, this is what you need to do. And this guy goes, I've done this since I was, you know, since my mother brought me up. And then suddenly it's almost like Jesus is going through the motions. And then, and then it says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Mm -hmm. Could you imagine that to Jesus to look at you and love you? Mm. And then that's where you've got John 14. Jesus says, if you, those, those who, those who obey me will be loved by me and my father. Mm. You know, mm -hmm. you know the passage, obedience mm -hmm. to the to, to Jesus and the Father. So Jesus is like, oh, 
And then this astonishing, ah, looked at him and loved him. Didn't look at him, chastise him, criticised him, but then he invited him and he says, one thing you lack. Do you like these other guys? Sell everything you have. Come follow me. He was being invited to be a disciple. Yeah. And he went, no. And when I first became a Christian, I was only 17 and I played that game of, oh, which disciple would I be? Yeah, you ever do that one? You start reading the Gospels, you like, because I didn't start reading the Bible until I was 17. And then I was like, I suddenly realized that I assumed that every Christian was a disciple and had said yes to Jesus saying, come follow me. But you quickly realize, no, a lot of people just show up on a Sunday or they want to be part of the crowd. They want to get fed. They want to be healed, but they don't want to, they don't want to do that bit. And in some ways it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, d- I think churches can't be, and this is this is back to how you resolve this. Some people have tried to make church so small, so intense that you have just a few people who are doing all the discipleship things and they're stifling. Um, the the you, discipleship might be something just a few people really do, but they bless the multitudes and the crowds and the other mm. people and the, that's yeah i'm not sure I'm, I'm rambling here this is the, the rubber this is what i'm thinking out loud in so in mm. our church here's what we're doing we've got a few people together and we said and i wish i'd done this when i started the church so it's not the discipleship doesn't happen in our church because it does but we've got a few groups together with a few people and we're saying to them we we're looking for people who really want to be all in that if jesus walked through the door and said in covid come follow me Who's really up for that? Dying to themselves in every area of their life, listening to God and saying yes, as best as we know. And with those few people, we're doing that. And we're meeting together as peers and saying, what's God saying to you about money, evangelism, the word, your lifestyle, your identity? And and ruth, not ruthlessly, but really vulnerably saying, come on. What's God said to you? What are you going to do about it? And how can we help you? Because mm. we hope that will be a, a fire in the rest of the church that will infect other people. Now, not everybody's going to want to do that. And that's absolutely fine. Um, there you go. Sorry, rambling. No, it's beautiful. Oh, that's stuff. great. Yeah, beautiful. Uh, Jason, we're, we're, we're getting low on time, but we would be very remiss to not mention, I think, one of the great, well, something that blessed my life tremendously it was one of the best decisions I ever made. But uh, Portland Seminary's, uh, yeah. uh, oh my gosh, it's LGP, uh, Leadership, Leadership Global Perspectives. Global I, I blanked there for a second. Um, <laughs> but give us give us a plug. I'll, I'll just say it was, it, it was one of the greatest decisions I did. Uh, and uh, one of the one of the best things I was tremendously blessed by it, and and still reaping the rewards mm-hmm. many years after. Uh, um, but but what is it? How can people get involved? I'm sure people sitting out there. Yeah, who, I mean it's uh, who, who so it's a, doctor of, it's a doctor of ministry. It's been going just over ten years. About 120 graduates from it now, um, and its focus is on leadership and understanding our global world and. You know, we'll hopefully start back this year after COVID going to South Africa. So students get to travel the world, 
uh, have peers and mentors. It's a professional doctorate. So they're doing research on ministry, NGO, leadership contexts that they're in. Uh, and we try to understand this crazy world that we're in from, you know, consumerism to, you know, what's happening in politics and leadership and issues of anxiety and differentiation and all those kinds of things so that people can, can be good leaders um, and have a global experience for where they are in the world. An exciting development is we think we're about to get accreditation and agreement to turn the Doctor of Ministry into a Doctor of Leadership because we've recognized there are a lot of people who are, yeah, they're educated enough, but they don't have a doctor of ministry. Um, and that will be exciting because mm -hmm. it'll, it'll open the door to people who are like, you know, I'm a teacher or I'm a social worker or I'm a missionary or I'm an NGO leader, or I'm in a, I'm a business and entrepreneur and don't want to go to a secular leadership uh, school or college and but don't want to do some sort of crass sort of biblical leadership thing want to do real leadership formation mm -hmm. uh with christian formation uh behind it so yeah that's where the program's hopefully going um and anyone with a master's anywhere in the world will be eligible to do a doctor of leadership it'll be the first first of its kind um oh, wow. from, in the us and from portland seminary i believe very exciting I, and I may, uh, I may have to look into that <laughs> I, I i will highly recommend it barrett I, you would you would love it i'll just say that uh, i mean and it's good i have a, i have a master's in christian leadership but i i should go for the doctorate too actually i think that exactly think you so that you would be able to without a master's of divinity without a bachelor without a master's of divinity you could do a doctor of leadership yeah. and you get a three continents perhaps some peers you would take a project you know close to your leadership context and take all your learning and and produce something that impacts the environment you're in and grows you as a leader plus what you what you're doing um and, and have a doctor of leadership It'd be great jason where can people find you in addition to portland seminary and your church or actually if your church does podcasts or sermon yeah. series or whatever else where can the, they find if, you? if people want to find everything i've got a website um jason swan clark it's a middle name jason swan clark.org or if you just put Jason Clark and church into Google, it'll, it'll pull it up. Um, and on that, my website, I've got my blog, podcast, links to the church things, Portland Seminary, everything, everything's awesome. on there. So if you just awesome. you do Jason Swan Clark, it'll just stick it in Google, you'll find me and everything. Under. Great. Yeah, the Google, the Google gnomes are really good about putting in the right wires and places. Tracking, so, yeah. tracking it down. Well, Jason, Jason thank it, you so much. Yeah. Been a, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for taking the time to, to uh, talk well, to a couple to you, in Texas. And it's good to do some recruitment for the yeah. uh, Doctor of Leadership. <laughs> yeah, hey, yeah, don't, yeah. Tell, I, don't tell my wife anytime soon. Okay? Yeah, <laughs> I think I think you've got a crew guy going through it or recent, recently went yeah, through Sean. it. Yeah, Sean. Yeah, Sean Kramer. Yeah, yeah. Sean Kramer, yeah. yeah, Kramer. Awesome. yeah. Oh, cool. Okay. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. Your crew yeah, guys so. being awesome. We need more people from crew. Okay, we'll try to. We'll try to. I, I've I've tried to talk a few people into it, but oh, know, I think I'm, I'll, I'll keep working on it. Uh, awesome. Well, you I, may you may get some people from Croatia. This is the this is the fifth ranked religious podcast in Croatia. Hey, excellent. I have no idea even what that means, but I got an email about it the other day. I'm quite proud about it. <laughs> We're <begging> for awesome. <laughs> Thanks, guys. All right, well, Jason. Thank you. Sir. Thank you. Uh, it's great to see you, Jason. And uh, yeah, excellent. When this thing ends ends up, come on down to Southern Spain and. Uh, come I know. Visit. 
I need to. <laughs> Thanks, guys.